0: Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In this episode, we're looking at adaptive and shock responsive social protection in action in some of the most disaster affected parts of the world. We'll talk about how adaptive programs can build resilience and help vulnerable people take anticipatory action before shocks hit. And we'll discuss disaster risk financing and how countries channel funds into social protection responses. My guests today join me from the Philippines and the Caribbean region. Riyad Katkoda is Social Protection and Cash-Based Transfers Lead at the Caribbean Multi-Country Office for the UN World Food Programme, and Rosella Agcoili is Social Policy Specialist at UNICEF Philippines. Welcome, Riyad and Rosella.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Happy to be here. We're talking in this episode today about shock-responsive and adaptive social protection. So let's start off by talking about the shocks themselves. Uh, And I'd like to ask you both what kinds of shocks Philippines and Caribbean countries are prone to or what they have experienced over recent years. Yes,
2: the Philippines ranked first in the World Risk Index. So based on this 2022 report, the Philippines has the highest overall disaster risks, in terms of disasters or vulnerability to extreme events such as earthquakes, floods, um, destructive super typhoons and volcanic eruptions. Its location also puts it in a direct path of some of the most destructive typhoons, such as Haiyan in 2013, and most recently, super typhoon Rai in 2021, affecting around 12 million people. Um, the country also experiences an average of 20 typhoons a year Apart from that, the Philippines also experiences armed conflict in the southern part. As any country, it is also affected by the global economic shocks, such as the COVID-19
0: pandemic and the effects of the Ukraine war with rising food and fuel costs. And just right off the bat, a really clear sense of what we're talking about here when we're talking about compounding crises. Riyadh, can you tell us a little bit about the region where you work?
1: absolutely so I think equally the Caribbean is is one of the most disaster prone regions in the world with uh, small island developing states being disproportionately affected by the human impacts of disaster um, on average we're seeing that disasters tend to affect about 10 percent of the uh, SIDS populations compared to maybe one percent in larger states um, adding to that the high vulnerability, to a range of shocks. So natural disasters, economic crises, and and lately pandemics. Um, Due to its location, the region is especially susceptible to a wide range of natural hazards. And the susceptibility is increasing with the range of impacts of climate change. Um, And from an economic perspective, I think Caribbean economies are small, highly indebted, and significantly trade dependent. And so this makes them also susceptible to external Global shocks, you know, the global financial crisis, currently the food and energy crisis—that is a result of the uh, Russian-Ukraine conflict.
0: Continuing with you, Riyadh, and just to frame this conversation, how do you think of adaptive or shock-responsive social protection as being different from regular social protection?
1: Yeah, good question. So, shock-responsive social protection programs differ in a sense that they are designed to be more flexible and responsive, as the name suggests, to the specific needs of vulnerable populations during and after shock or crises. And so they tend to be more timely in the response, but as well, they tend to provide a wider coverage than regular social protection programs. um, In comparison to routine social protection programs that might take longer time to onboard uh, beneficiaries, um shock responsive social protection programs are more timely in their response with shorter application processes, as well as potentially a wider coverage to the population that is being affected.
2: Yes, um, the difference is that for your regular social protection, they typically address risks that are experienced by individuals and families, whereas shock responsive social protection heightens the focus on shocks. Most often, these are covaried shocks or risk covariate risks such as natural hazards or economic crises, or the COVID-19 pandemic affecting a much broader um, coverage of population. So in effect, your shock-responsive social protection is still leveraging elements of the regular social protection system such as the beneficiary list or your targeting system or the payments mechanism to channel emergency assistance before, during, or after a shock, and thereafter allowing the system to scale back and contract when emergency assistance is no longer needed.
0: Adaptive or shock responsive social protection also adopts the framework of resilience, which it also has in common with approaches to disaster risk reduction. As you've outlined, it's about designing programs to support communities and families to prepare for shocks, to cope with those shocks when they occur, and subsequently also adapt so that they are potentially less affected by future shocks. So Rosella, thinking about this idea of resilience, can you give some examples of how social protection programs could be contributing to resilient families and communities?
2: I would use the example of providing cash and social assistance benefits to affected population. One of UNICEF's response to Typhoon Haiyan back then was actually topping up the existing four-piece beneficiaries cash card with additional benefits to cover for the added effects of Typhoon Hayan. The Pantawid Familia Filipino Program, or 4 p is a poverty-targeted conditional cash transfers program of the Philippines government. And when we were able to actually go back to the beneficiaries six months after to evaluate um, what happened, we found out that a lot of these families used portions of the cash not only to rebuild their livelihoods but also to start
0: savings, which they could then use for future shocks if and when needed. Riad, how do you think about social protection programmes contributing to resilience where you work?
1: So we can see various elements coming together in helping sort of mitigate vulnerable households and preventing them falling deeper into poverty through programmes that provide cash transfers or food assistance to households, which can help reduce poverty and food insecurity particularly, and thereby improving their ability to cope with future shocks. Or programs that incentivize households to adopt risk reduction measures, such as diversifying their livelihoods can help build resilience by reducing their vulnerabilities to shocks. Equally, school feeding programs that help provide children with nutritious meals during or after a shock can help improve their health and well-being and also help to keep them in school, which can provide them with the long-term resilience and skills.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think it's really interesting in this area that we think about human capacity development as contributing in the sort of medium to long term to resilience in a sense, but also particularly in the context of disasters, this very acute phase of coping and adapting to those shocks and those relies, as you've said, on things like having savings or even having access sometimes to social insurance or insurance products, diversifying livelihoods after the fact. Riyadh, I also wanted to ask you information is key to resilience, so things like early warning of approaching disasters, for example. How can social protection programs be harnessed to help disseminate information in these kinds of
1: contexts? Social protection programs really do play an important role because they already have communication channels established. And so leveraging those existing communication channels to disseminate information such as maybe through SMS, radio, television, would really reach the most vulnerable in channels that they're already used to, to help them in providing information on disaster preparedness or notifying them of an approaching storm. But they also can leverage existing community outreach. Social protection programs can engage with communities through outreach activities, workshops, awareness raising campaigns to help build that trust and disseminate the information. As well, social protection programs um, tend to deal with a lot of different stakeholders in their coordination sort of hat, And so they can leverage on different government agencies, NGOs, community-based organizations to share information and, and resources on disaster risk reduction.
2: The benefit of using social protection programs as one of your delivery mechanisms for emergency assistance is that one is able to capitalize on existing social protection program infrastructure to deliver complementary and important messages. Most social assistance programs, for example, in the Philippines, are designed with a plus component, and these components often include information dissemination. They take the forms of family development sessions, peer-to-peer learning, parent seminars, among others. Some are more elaborate with a highly structured form of communication that involves a network of caseworkers and parent leaders. Um, For instance, when UNICEF topped up the four-piece beneficiaries account in response to Super Typhoon RAI, we also complemented the cash assistance with information-sharing sessions, giving advice on child protection, nutrition, water, sanitation, and hygiene in the context of emergencies, which was also well-received by program beneficiaries
0: and partners. Rosella, I wanted to ask you about anticipatory action. Can you tell us a little bit about what is anticipatory action and how can social protection payments play a role in supporting people ahead of shocks?
2: So basically, anticipatory action entails the provision of assistance before the impending landfall of a natural hazard. So in that sense, it borders between preparedness and the actual response. So it's that thin line in between where you're actually already providing anticipatory response, but the typhoon hasn't hit yet, for instance. Well, but you know that it's going to hit soon. And in that instance, your objective is to actually mitigate or reduce the losses and the potential impact of that impending hazard to a group of populations. Um, so UNICEF in the Philippines is piloting anticipatory response ahead of a rapidly intensifying um, major typhoon through the government social protection program, that's the, again the Pantamid Pamilia or the 4 piece. The intention is to provide ex-ante social assistance three days before the projected landfall of a Category 3 typhoon in two provinces in the eastern seaboard of the country. UNICEF works with the Philippines Department of Social Welfare and Development to vertically expand the 4 ps with additional 1,000 pesos for child-related expenditures if and when the triggers, usually through the early warning system, are activated for a rapidly intensifying hazard. Um, we use the existing program infrastructure of 4 ps from beneficiaries, payments, and communication flows for readiness, activation of triggers, and the actual provision of assistance, among others.
0: I think this is such an interesting area of social protection practice and emerging practice, not least because it really raises some interesting questions for targeting and beneficiary selection. Riyad, are Caribbean countries also thinking about anticipatory response?
1: So um, our work in the Caribbean has been in the nascent stages, started off last year with the goal of linking uh, anticipatory action to existing social protection systems and um, using it as another means to support governments in strengthening those systems and making them more shock responsive so that they can more quickly and effectively respond to an impending disaster. So I think... um, It's important to provide assistance before a hazard turns into a disaster to be able to reduce the impact on the populations. Um, We see that a lot of already existing vulnerable populations are suffering even prior to a disaster. So this provides them with an additional buffer to be able to board up their houses, buy the food they require prior to a hazard occurring.
2: In terms of the um, the cash being given to them ahead of the impending or imminent disaster, it allows people to actually determine what sort of requirements do they need to basically minimize the impact of that disaster without us telling them that you know you need to go. To- and evacuate or you need to do this, you need to buy that, but that actually allows them, gives them the power to determine exactly what type of um, mitigating measures they need to adapt to prepare for whatever hazard rather than us dictating that they should be repositioning supplies or, you know, for, for some people, it might just be going to a safer ground, it might just be going to relatives to be safe. For some, it might just be early harvesting to minimize the losses on the crops. It, it could be
0: various things. That's a great point. As with- So much of social protection, it's about offering people choices or or allowing people to make those decisions, as you say. Let's turn now to data and information systems and what those systems need to look like in order to make shock responsive and adaptive social protection work. Let me start with you, Riyadh. How do countries need to rethink the way they target programs or about how they build beneficiary registries or lists to ensure that governments have the right information about the right people to respond effectively when shocks occur? How does that need to be different from the way perhaps we've thought about it traditionally?
1: I think um, capturing information on vulnerability is a critical step in designing effective shock-responsive social protection programs uh, to ensure that these programs are actually reaching the most vulnerable populations. And it's important to include areas that they are exposed to or vulnerable to shocks in such databases that we might see missing in routine social protection um, databases or beneficiary registries. In addition, uh, GIS data or hazard maps and other sources of information can also be used to capture vulnerability. This can involve mapping out hazard-prone areas and cross-referencing them with information that exists on beneficiary or social registries. And by doing so, it would help decision makers to gain a better understanding of the specific needs of certain areas or populations and how they can have a better informed response when a shock occurs. So in the
2: Philippines, the regular poverty registry is what you call the Lista Registry. There were issues with it during the COVID-19 distribution of emergency social assistance because that list Hanan was not yet updated. It was in the process of being updated, so it wasn't really fully complete. And at that time, there were issues around who's in that list and who's not. So changes in welfare status were not captured so much so that um, the government has to go back to the local government units to update the list and sort of start making and you know making another round of validations rather than relying on the national database because it wasn't yet fully updated by the time. So the importance of having a dynamic poverty registry that is able to actually, you know have those vulnerabilities. is really important for covariate shocks, such as the pandemic. So it has more to do with having a very dynamic poverty registry. If it's poverty targeted, make sure that it's regularly updated to consider changes in welfare status and other
0: vulnerabilities. Rosella, can you give me some examples of how Philippines have or are thinking about building data and information systems that have been better able to scale up or reach affected populations? As
2: part of the joint program under the SDG Fund with FAO, UNICEF supported the Ministry of Social Services and Development in the Bangsamoro Autonomous Region of Muslim Mindanao to design a poverty and disaster registry that incorporates risks and vulnerabilities that are unique to the context of the region. It is a prototype and still at early stages with um, the ministry um, preparing for its eventual pilot implementation. The registry is needed for a region that is characterized. By sporadic and decades-long armed conflict, and also with the highest deprivations.
0: So, how is that subnational registry different, or how does it complement the data that's in the national social registry?
2: It has more questions that are unique to the Barm context because it's Muslim in the now. So, other characteristics around um, family, household dynamics, or like having areas where there's regular armed conflict. Some of those. Some other characteristics are not captured by your National Poverty Registry in Listahanan, so which is why the request from the Ministry of Social Services to have one that's more context-specific to the bomb that is able to actually capture the circumstances of the people living in the region.
0: Riyad, let me come to you. I know that WFP is also doing a lot of work with Caribbean countries, looking at information management systems, targeting beneficiary databases. You know, how are Caribbean countries thinking about this challenge of having very scalable, very nimble social registries?
1: I think it's really a process of small building blocks. Uh, when you have a large paper-based system, you can't just move it quickly to becoming a high-end social registry. So it's all about having these small steps that you build around mm-hmm. people and processes to develop the technology to be sustainable. And I think this could be exemplified by our work in the British Virgin Islands, where in early 2022, we have been working with the government following a political shock of consolidating the social assistance grants into the social welfare department. And this really started years ago as a response to uh, Hurricane Irma, uh, where we have collected a large amount of data following the response and have been working with the government to transition different households under the flagship public assistance program and provide technical support on uh, intake, registration, enrollment, as well as payments and follow-up through a a digital interim uh, management information system that is able to handle all of these requests
0: coming now to financing and particularly disaster risk financing on this podcast we've talked a lot about the need to finance social protection floors or universal approaches to social protection we've talked about financing gaps so you know financing social protection is a challenge at the best of times can i start with you rosella what kinds of financial instruments has the Philippines put in place to fund emergency responses?
2: The Philippines has one of the most comprehensive disaster risk financing strategy in the region. It adopts a risk-layering approach in recognition that no one instrument can respond to all risks. Depending on the scale and severity of the disaster, it employs both risk retention and risk transfer instruments to finance the cost of emergency response. As part of the annual budget, there is a pre-arranged source of financing for disaster response. This is known as the National Disaster Risk Reduction Management Fund or the NDRRMF. And a subset of that is the Quick Response Fund or the QRF that's automatically appropriated to first responder agencies such as the Department of Social Welfare. Majority of disaster response in the Philippines is actually financed via public budgets or risk retention instruments. Local government units also have their automatic and mandatory 5% of their annual local budget, at a minimum, allotted for disaster response. When these prearranged sources of financing are not sufficient, the government does budgetary allocations. It also has a standby contingent credit to ensure immediate liquidity and lessen pressure on public budgets. For high severity and rare occurrence disasters, these are financed through risk transfer instruments or market-based insurance. The government has enrolled in a parametric insurance for its public assets for a number of local government units and for households for two types of hazards, earthquakes and tropical cyclones. It's insured through the Government Social Service Insurance, GSIS, Government, social insurance system the gsi is actually a contributory scheme for um for the government employees it's where they usually contribute for their pension but it also does work as a parametric insurer so basically um the government pays the premium to gsis for that insurance and when the when the payouts are triggered or some hazards are eligible for payouts then the gsis actually pays the government for the cost of the the damages or the the response needed for disaster. That's through government mechanism. That's one channel. There is also that existing um, mechanism through the World Bank where the government has tapped into the World Bank's expertise to help them design a catastrophe ban, which they then are able to sort of like transfer the risk to capital markets. So in essence, providing the government access to capital market funds to finance disasters. So it's also the same model that is parametric insurance and the same types of... um, events that triggers payouts, um, cyclones and earthquake.
0: And that parametric insurance that Rosella mentioned is a form of insurance where a payout is triggered in the event of a predefined disaster, like as Rosella was saying, an earthquake or a cyclone, rather than based on an assessment of actual damages. And one of the advantages of this is that it means that payments can be made relatively quickly and transparently once it's clear that the event has occurred. Riyad, once funding or financing is available, what mechanisms are used to distribute support to people in need, and how are social protection programs used for this purpose?
1: So I think um, governments across the Caribbean have realized that utilizing national social protection programs is key um, to responding or to reducing disaster impacts. And um, through a risk layered approach, they've been also utilizing different financial instruments Uh, such as the parametric insurance, um, where WFP is assisting in providing a particular top-up to their insurance uh, premiums uh, and utilizing that towards social protection programs. So in Dominica, for example, WFP is providing premium support to augment the existing uh, tropical cyclone policy. Um, And if this policy triggers Following an event, a portion of the payout will be used as cash assistance that is channeled through social protection programs to be able to provide beneficiaries with cash assistance. And so this approach really puts vulnerable people at the centre of risk financing, while still allowing the flexibility for governments to utilise the financing to other response, recovery and resilience priorities. Um, We have also been replicating this approach in Belize and other governments are currently interested in that as well.
0: So Riyad, when you say that WFP is topping up the premium, can you explain that a little
1: bit more? So um, the governments within the Caribbean are actively working with an entity called CRIF, which is the Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility. Um, And it's a company that provides um, insurance or parametric insurance. And parametric insurance is really um, an insurance that is triggered by a disaster or a magnitude of an event rather than um, the losses that are generated after the event. And here, uh, governments have um, signed up to different uh, schemes. So for the government of Dominica, it was the tropical cyclone policy. Um, There's also policies including excess rainfall and so on. So they pay towards a scheme where they provide a premium and they receive a payout. Where WFP is coming in is providing an additional funding to this premium to allow for a percentage of the payout that is equal to the top up to the premium to be used for social protection. So it's always um, hard to, you know, justify putting large sums of money towards an insurance scheme. But the, on the other hand, the payouts that this triggers is quite enormous. It allows for the flexibility of response and especially Um, When you're talking about a tight fiscal space, this could really allow for a a proper cushioning to a disaster uh, should it occurs. And maybe here just to say that it's not the only type of financial products. We're also seeing that there's um, instruments that include micro insurance, or even the World Bank's uh, CAAT DDO, which is the catastrophe deferred drawdown option, It's a contingent financing line that would, you know, provide immediate liquidity to governments should there would be an impact uh, of a natural hazard or a crisis.
0: Rosella, adaptive social protection requires bringing these big national social protection schemes together with disaster risk management approaches. Increasingly, we're also talking about the need to bring in strategies for climate change, adaptation, mitigation, On this podcast, we often find ourselves talking about just how hard that kind of coordination is and yet how essential it is because we're always talking about these very complex problems. What are some of the examples of how Philippines has developed strategies or fostered this kind of coordination?
2: The Philippines at the national level has adopted a roadmap on adaptive and shock responsive social protection, which seeks to bring the two actors together, those from the disaster response management and from the social protection. So trying to bring them together to see how the shock responsive social protection agenda could move forward better. Um, At the Bangsamoro Autonomous Region of Muslim Mindanao, a most recent initiative has been the establishment of a cash working group that is totally different with the national cash working group in the sense that the BARM cash working group is really much Focus on providing a platform for both the discussion of social protection and humanitarians bringing in that humanitarian and development nexus also probably because the region is characterized by high levels of deprivations and at the same time you have issues around armed conflict and peace building there so it provides a very good platform for discussing those issues together and having shock responsive social protection as a core agenda of the cash working group the national cash working group Working group does not really cover social protection. It's more disaster response, more humanitarian issues. But somewhere down in southern Philippines, your cash working group there actually discusses shock responsive social protection.
1: Yeah, I think um, across the region, we are seeing growing recognition of the importance of this coordination between social protection and disaster risk management. And um, just by realizing the importance of that, uh, you know, stakeholders are developing effective strategies that build on resilience and responding to the needs of vulnerable populations. We've seen an example in St. Lucia where the government has developed a comprehensive disaster risk management framework that includes social protection As a key component. Um, And it includes a number of strategies on promoting resilience, such as integrating risk reduction uh, practices into social protection policies. Um, The government has also piloted with WFP a vulnerability index to be able to identify potential areas of vulnerability in the event of a disaster. And this really sits at the core of bringing together both disciplines.
0: We've focused a lot on natural hazards in this conversation, and it's probably fair to say that a lot of the work around adaptive and shock responsive social protection stems from this kind of disaster response. But as we face other kinds of shocks, we've talked about inflation, COVID, how do you see shock responsive social protection coming into play?
1: I think Really, the idea behind shock-responsive social protection is to respond to covariate shocks, regardless of whether they were disaster, economic, health crises. And the idea here is to allow systems to be able to respond more rapidly, whether it's through vertical or horizontal expansion. So by providing top-ups to existing beneficiaries or including new ones, um, regardless of the type of crises that is occurring, I think it's the differentiation would really be in terms of how do you target beneficiaries in terms of all of these different crises. But we've seen that governments. From the start of the pandemic, have really relied on many aspects of social or shock responsive social protection to be able to deliver to their citizens. And so there is enormous momentum in terms of having these systems stay for the future and continue to strengthen them based on the lessons learned.
2: Yes, I think that for the successive crisis that has happened recently, including COVID pandemic, the rising food and fuel prices, the Philippines government has actually recognized that the easiest way or the quickest way to deliver emergency social assistance is actually through your social protection systems. So, for instance, it was easier to top up the existing beneficiaries of the Pantawid Familia to provide assistance, the existing beneficiaries of the social pension for indigent senior citizens, for instance, because the beneficiaries are already there. The payment mechanisms are existing. So it was much easier to disburse funds as quickly as needed to reach your beneficiaries, apart from you know, using other types of interventions to reach those populations that are not covered by your existing beneficiaries. That type of mechanism probably takes much more time to set up in, in the absence of a targeting mechanism, in the absence of a payment delivery mechanism. So your social protection system offers your government the quickest way to actually disburse cash to people who
0: are affected by crisis. Rosella and Riyad, thank you very much for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today. Pleasure to join ma'am.
1: It's a pleasure being with you. Thank you for having us.
0: And for more on this topic, keep an eye out for the upcoming Global Forum on Adaptive Social Protection, Protecting Lives and Livelihoods in Times of Crisis, which will take place from the 13th to the 15th of June. It's organised by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development and the World Bank, implemented by GIZ and supported by socialprotection.org and UNDP. You can tune into live sessions, and we've put a link with more information in the show notes. Don't miss it. We like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask our guest to bring in some recommendations for research news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. For today's quick wins, we have James Jumba. James is a consultant who previously worked as a social security prosecutor at the National Social Security Fund in Kenya. He was also an ambassador for socialprotection.org. Welcome, James. Thank you. So, to start us off, James, you attended the Kenya Social Protection Conference back in April. What were the highlights of that conference for you?
3: There were many good things that happened during the social protection conference. First, I wanted to highlight A keynote address by Marco Knowles from the Food and Agriculture Organization, which was about reaching the rural populations with social protection. For me, the most interesting part was that, one, there is a higher concentration of uh, poverty and vulnerability in the rural population compared to the urban population, coupled with also high informality and exposure to climate shocks. And secondly, also how we need to adopt social protection systems for rural population.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Um, We were really pleased to have Marco on this podcast back in October last year, talking about the nutrition gap. And I think that's especially the case in rural areas, to your point. What else stood out to you from that conference?
3: Another presentation which stood out for me was a keynote address by Gala Dalit. She focused on how households can adapt to changing uh, climate. She made very interesting observations in her address, which included, firstly, that uh, there is need for climate-sensitive social protection. She made a, a connection between climate change risks and the social protection gap. And secondly, she made a case for the need for greater policy coherence between social protection programs and climate adaptation policies in order for us to meet the climate adaptation goals. If you look at these two keynote addresses, you find that the majority of the Kenyan population is found in the rural areas, and they are undergoing a lot of challenges in terms of socio-economic aspect, and we've seen in the few years a lot of challenges with the climate, where most of the farmers who initially depended on rain-fed agriculture uh, are now having to focus on other means of livelihoods, such as uh, shifting from agriculture to business. And of course... That is really upsetting for people who have been uh, doing agriculture for many years. And so if we apply the kind of prescriptions that these two keynote addresses uh, offer, it will help the Kenyan government, for instance, in deploying uh, climate financing. And also, since we are talking about uh, adaptive social protection, also include Issues like early warning systems to help farmers to be able to anticipate in a better way. So using uh, early warning systems and also incorporating uh, social protection programs will help the farmers to build resilience and also practice their agriculture in a better way than uh, what is happening now.
0: Yes. And so while we're on the subject of climate change and resilience, um, you've also brought in a paper on this topic as your third pick for Quick Wins today.
3: Yes. The paper is titled uh, Building Resilience to Climate Risks Through Social Protection, From Individualised Models to Systemic Transformation. It is authored by Martina Ulrich, Rachel Slater and uh, Cecilia Costella. What I find uh, very interesting in this paper is that social protection can aid in increasing the capacity of national disaster response systems through well-designed programs that help to build resilience in the context of climate risks. That is uh, one of my takeaways from the paper. And uh, secondly, there is need for a systems approach to resilience policies and programming. I would highly recommend this paper to practitioners, especially those who would like to understand the sub-Saharan context and on how we can build resilience in the, in the context of climate risks.
0: Thank you. That's excellent. Yes. And I might take the opportunity to add that we also had a really great interview on this podcast with Cecilia Costello, who's one of the authors you just mentioned, and Bessie Mususa from Malawi back in November, um, looking at all the ways that social protection could be brought to bear on climate change. And it is really interesting to consider. How social protection not only can help potentially smooth shocks, but also contribute to climate adaptation, even transformation, if we're going to transition to a post-carbon world. So it's a really rich area of discussion. And in addition to the paper, I can suggest the podcast as a compliment. James Jumba, thank you so much for bringing in these really interesting resources and for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Before I go today, a reminder that it's time for socialprotection.org's annual satisfaction survey. If you listen to this show or use any other part of the socialprotection.org platform, please take our five-minute survey, just five minutes, to tell us what you think about our services and features and how we could improve them. Your input really does influence how the platform develops. A link to the survey is in the show notes, or you can find it at socialprotection, that's all one word, dot O-R-G. And thank you again for listening to the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. Go on, leave a review. Back next month. See you then.